Volume Two, Section One, of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shalifa Malchem. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Claghorn Gaskell, Volume Two, Section One. Chapter One. During the summer of 1846, while her literary hopes were waning, an anxiety of another kind was increasing. Her father's eyesight had become seriously impaired by the progress of the cataract which was forming. He was nearly blind. He could grope his way about and recognize the figures of those he knew well when they were placed against a strong light, but he could no longer see to read and thus his eager appetite for knowledge and information of all kinds was severely balked. He continued to preach. I have heard that he was let up into the pulpit, and that his sermons were never so effective as when he stood there, a grey, sightless old man, his blind eyes looking out straight before him, while the words that came from his lips had all the vigour and force of his best days. Another fact has been mentioned to me, curious as showing the accurateness of his sensation of time. His sermons had always lasted exactly half an hour. With the clock right before him, and with his ready flow of words, this had been no difficult matter as long as he could see. But it was the same when he was blind, as a minute hand came to the point, marking the expiration of the thirty minutes, he concluded his sermon and his great sorrow he was always patient as in times of far greater affliction he enforced a quiet endurance of his woe upon himself but so many interests were quenched by this blindness that he was driven inwards and must have dwelt much on what was painful and distressing in regard to his only son no wonder that his spirits gave way and were depressed for some time before this autumn his daughters had been collecting all the information they could respecting the probable success of operations for cataract performed on a person of their father's age. About the end of July, Emily and Charlotte had made a journey to Manchester for the purpose of searching out an operator, and there they heard of the fame of the late Mr. Wilson as an oculist. They went to him at once, but he could not tell from the description whether the eyes were ready for being operated upon or not. It therefore became necessary for Mr. Bronte to visit him, and towards the end of August Charlotte brought her father to him. He determined at once to undertake the operation, and recommended them to comfortable lodgings, kept by an old servant of his. These were, in one of numerous similar streets, or small monotonous-looking houses, in a suburb of the town. From thence the following letter is dated, on August 21st, 1846. I just scribble a line to you to let you know where I am, in order that you may write to me here, for it seems to me that a letter from you would relieve me from the feeling of strangeness I have in this big town. Papa and I came here on Wednesday. We saw Mr. Wilson, the oculist, the same day. He pronounced Papa's eyes quite ready for an operation, and has fixed next Monday for the performance of it. 
think of us on that day. We got into our lodgings yesterday. I think we shall be comfortable. At least our rooms are very good. But there is no mistress of the house. She is very ill and gone out into the country. And I am somewhat puzzled in managing about provisions. We board ourselves. I find myself excessively ignorant. I can't tell what to order and the way of meat. For ourselves I could contrive. Papa's diet is so very simple. But there will be a nurse coming in a day or two, and I am afraid of not having things good enough for her. Papa requires nothing, you know, but plain beef and mutton, tea and bread and butter. But a nurse will probably expect to live much better. Give me some hints, if you can. Mr. Wilson says we shall have to stay here for a month at least. I wonder how Emily and Dan will get on at home with Branwell. They too will have their troubles. What would I not give to have you here? One is forced, step by step, to get experience in the world. But the learning is so disagreeable. One cheerful feature in the business is that Mr. Wilson thinks most favourably of the case. August 26th, 1846 The operation is over. It took place yesterday. Mr. Wilson performed it. Two other surgeons assisted. Mr. Wilson says he considers it quite successful, but Papa cannot yet see anything. The affair lasted precisely a quarter of an hour. It was not the simple operation of couching Mr. C. described, but the more complicated one of extracting the cataract. Mr. Wilson entirely disapproves of couching. Papa displayed extraordinary patience and firmness. The surgeon seemed surprised. I was in the room all the time, as it was his wish that I should be there. Of course I neither spoke nor moved, till the thing was done, and then I felt that the less I said either to papa or the surgeons, the better. Papa is now confined to his bed in a dark room, and is not to be stirred for four days. He is to speak and be spoken to as little as possible. I am greatly obliged to you for your letter and your kind advice, which gave me extreme satisfaction, because I found I had arranged most things in accordance with it, and as your theory coincides with my practice, I feel assured the letter is right. I hope Mr. Wilson will soon allow me to dispense with the nurse. She is well enough, no doubt, but somewhat too obsequious, and not, I should think, to be much trusted. Yet I was obliged to trust her in some things. Greatly was I amused by your account of Blank's flirtations, and yet something sad and also. I think nature intended him for something better than to fritter away his time in making a set of poor, unoccupied spinsters unhappy. The girls, unfortunately, are forced to care for him, and such as him, because while their minds are mostly unemployed, their sensations are all unworn and consequently fresh and green, and he, on the contrary, has had his fill of pleasure, and can with impunity make a mere pastime of other people's torments. This is an unfair state of things. The match is not equal. I only wish I had the power to infuse into the souls of the persecuted a little of the quiet strength of pride, of the supporting consciousness of superiority, 
for they are superior to him because purer, of the fortifying resolve of firmness to bear the present and wait the end. Could all the virgin population of Blank receive and retain these sentiments, he would continually have to feel his crest before them. Perhaps, luckily, their feelings are not so acute as one would think, and the gentleman's shafts consequently don't wound so deeply as he might desire. I hope it is so. A few days later she writes thus. Papa is still lying in bed in a dark room with his eyes bandaged. No inflammation ensued, but still it appears the greatest care, perfect quiet, and utter privation of light are necessary to ensure a good result from the operation. He is very patient, but of course depressed and weary. He was allowed to try his sight for the first time yesterday. He could see dimly. Mr. Wilson seemed perfectly satisfied, and said all was right. I have had bad nights from the toothache since I came to Manchester. All this time, notwithstanding the domestic anxieties which were harassing them, notwithstanding the ill-success of their poems, the three sisters were trying that other literary venture to which Charlotte made allusion in one of her letters to the Monsieur Zaylet. Each of them had written a prose tale, hoping that the three might be published together. Withering Heights and Agnes Grey are before the world. The third, Charlotte's contribution, is yet in manuscript, but will be published shortly after the appearance of this memoir. The plot in itself is of no great interest, but it is a poor kind of interest that depends upon startling incidents rather than upon dramatic development of character. And Charlotte Bronte never excelled one or two sketches of portraits which he had given him the professor, nor in grace of womanhood ever surpassed one of the female characters there described. By the time she wrote this tale, her taste and judgment had revolted against the exaggerated idealism of her early girlhood, and she went to the extreme of reality, closely depicting characters as they had shown themselves to her in actual life. If there they were strong even to coarseness, as was the case with some that she had met with in flesh-and-blood existence, she wrote them down an ass. If the scenery of such life as she saw was for the most part wild and grotesque, instead of pleasant and picturesque, she described it line for line. The grace of the one or two scenes and characters, which are drawn rather from her own imagination than from absolute fact, stand out in exquisite relief from the deep shadows and wayward lines of others, which call to mind some of the portraits of Rembrandt. The three tales had tried their fate in vain together. At length, they were sent forth separately, and for many months with still continued ill-success. I have mentioned this here because, among the dispiriting circumstances connected with her anxious visit to Manchester, Jala told me that her tale came back upon her hands, curtly rejected by some publisher, on the very day when her father was to submit to his operation. But she had the heart of Robert Bruce within her, and failure upon failure daunted her no more than him. Not only did the professor return again to try his chance among the London publishers, but she began 
in this time of care and depressed inquietude in those grey weary uniform streets where all faces save that of a kind doctor were strange and untouched with sunlight to her there and then did the brave genius begin jane eyre read what she herself says cora bell's book found acceptance nowhere nor any acknowledgment of merit so that something like the chill of despair began to invade his heart and remember it was not the heart of a person who disappointed in one hope can turn with redoubled affection to the many certain blessings of that remain think of a home and the black shadows of remorse lying over one in it till his very brain was mazed and his gifts and his life were lost think of a father's side hanging on a thread of her sister's delicate health and dependence on her care and then admire as it deserves to be admired the steady courage which could work away at jane eyre all the time that a one-volume tale was plodding its weary round in london i believe i have already mentioned that some of her surviving friends consider that an incident which she heard when at school at miss wooler's was the germ of the story of jane eyre but of this nothing can be known except by conjecture those to whom she spoke upon the subject of her writings are dead and silent and the reader may probably have noticed that in the correspondence from which i have quoted there has been no allusion whatever to the publication of her poems nor is there the least hint of the intention of the sisters to publish any tales i remember however many little particulars which miss brontë gave me in answer to my inquiries respecting her mode of composition etc she said that it was not every day that she could write sometimes weeks or even months elapsed before she felt that she had anything to add to that portion of her story which was already written then some morning she would waken up and the progress of her tale lay clear and bright before her in distinct vision when this was the case all her care was to discharge her household and filial duties so as to obtain leisure to sit down and write out the incidents and consequent thoughts which were in fact more present to her mind at such times than her actual life itself yet notwithstanding this possession as it were those who survive of her daily and household companions are clear in their testimony that never was a claim of any duty never was a call of another for help neglected for an instant it had become necessary to give tabby now nearly eighty years of age the assistance of a girl tabby relinquished any of her work with jealous reluctance and could not bear to be reminded though ever so delicately that the acuteness of her senses was dulled by age the other servant might not interfere with what she chose to consider her exclusive work among other things she reserved to herself the right of peeling the potatoes for dinner but as she was growing blind she often left in those black specks which we in the north call the eyes of the potato miss brontë was too dainty a housekeeper to put up with this yet she could not bear to hurt the faithful old servant by bidding the younger maiden go over the potatoes again and so reminding tabby that her work was less effectual than formerly 
Accordingly, she would steal into the kitchen and quietly carry off the bowl of vegetables, without Tabby's being aware, and breaking off in the full flow of interest and inspiration in her writing, carefully cut out the specks in the potatoes, and noiselessly carried them back to their place. This little proceeding may show how orderly and fully she accomplished her duties, even at those times when possession was upon her. Anyone who has studied her writings, whether in print or in her letters, anyone who has enjoyed the rare privilege of listening to her talk, must have noticed a singular felicity in the choice of words. She herself, in writing her books, was solicitous on this point. One set of words was a truthful mirror of her thoughts. No others, however apparently identical in meaning, would do. She had that strong practical regard for the simple holy truth of expression which Mr. Trent has enforced as a duty too often neglected. She would wait patiently, searching for the right term until it presented itself to her. It might be provincial, it might be derived from the Latin, so that it accurately represented her idea. She did not mind whence it came. But this care makes a style present the finish of a piece of music. Each component part, however small, has been dropped into the right place. She never wrote down a sentence until she clearly understood what she wanted to say, had deliberately chosen the words, and arranged them in their right order. Hence it comes that, in the scraps of paper covered with her pencil writing which I have seen, there will occasionally be a sentence scored out, but seldom, if ever, a word or an expression. She wrote on these bits of paper in a minute hand, holding each against a piece of board, such as is used in binding books, for a desk. This plan was necessary for one so short-sighted as she was, and besides, it enabled her to use pencil and paper, as she sat near the fire in the twilight hours, or if, as was too often the case, she was wakeful for hours in the night. Her finished manuscripts were copied from these pencil scraps in clear, legible, delicate-traced writing, almost as easy to read as print. The sisters retained the old habit, which was begun in their aunt's lifetime, of putting away their work at nine o'clock, and beginning their study, pacing up and down the sitting-room. At this time they talked over the stories they were engaged upon, and described their plots. Once or twice a week, each read to the others what she had written, and heard what they had to say about it. Charlotte told me that the remarks made had seldom any effect in inducing her to alter her work, so possessed was she with the feeling that she had described reality. But the readings were of great and stirring interest to all, taking them out of the gnawing pressure of daily recurring cares, and setting them in a free place. It was on one of these occasions that Charlotte determined to make her heroine plain, small, and unattractive, in defiance of the accepted canon. The writer of the beautiful obituary article on the death of Currabelle most likely learned from herself what is there stated, and which I will take the liberty of quoting, about Jane Eyre. She once told her sisters that they were wrong 
even morally wrong in making their heroines beautiful as a matter of course. They replied that it was impossible to make a heroine interesting on any other terms. Her answer was, I will prove to you that you are wrong. I will show you a heroine as plain and as small as myself, who shall be as interesting as any of yours. Hence Jane Eyre, said she in telling the anecdote, but she is not myself any further than that. As the work went on, the interest deepened to the writer. When she came to Thornfield, she could not stop. Being short-sighted to excess, she wrote in little square paper books held close to her eyes, and the first copy in pencil. On she went, writing incessantly for three weeks, by which time she had carried her heroine away from Thornfield, and was herself in a fever which compelled her to pause. This is all, I believe, which can now be told respecting the conception and composition of this wonderful book, which was, however, only at its commencement, when Miss Bronte returned with her father to Haworth, after their anxious expedition to Manchester. They arrived at home about the end of September. Mr. Bronte was daily gaining strength, but he was still forbidden to exercise his sight much. Things had gone on more comfortably, while she was away, than Charlotte had dared to hope, and she expresses herself thankful for the good ensured and the evil spared during her absence. Soon after this some proposal, of which I have not been able to gain a clear account, was again mooted for Miss Bronte's opening a school at some place distant from Haworth. It elicited the following fragment of a characteristic reply. Leave home. I shall neither be able to find place nor employment. Perhaps, too, I shall be quite past the prime of life. My faculties will be rusted, and my few requirements in a great measure forgotten. These ideas sting me keenly sometimes, but whenever I consult my conscience, it affirms that I am doing right in staying at home, and bitter are its upbraidings when I yield to an eager desire for release. I could hardly expect success if I were to err against such warnings. I should like to hear from you again soon. Bring blank to the point, and make him give you a clear, not a vague account of what pupils he really could promise. People often think they can do great things in that way till they have tried. But getting pupils is unlike getting any other sort of goods. Whatever might be the nature and extent of this negotiation, the end of it was that Charlotte adhered to the decision of a conscience which bade her remain at home as long as a present could cheer or comfort those who were in distress, or had the slightest influence over him who was the cause of it. The next extract gives us a glimpse into the cares of that home. It is from a letter dated December 15th. I hope you are not frozen up. The cold here is dreadful. I do not remember such a series of North Pole days. England might really have taken a slide up into the Arctic zone. The sky looks like ice. The earth is frozen. The wind is as keen as a two-edged blade. We have all had severe colds and coughs in consequence of the weather. Poor Anne has suffered greatly from asthma, but is now, we are glad to say, rather better. She had two nights last week when her cough and difficulty of breathing were painful indeed to hear and witness, 
and must have been most distressing to suffer. She bore it, as she bears all affliction, without one complaint, only sighing now and then when nearly worn out. She has an extraordinary heroism of endurance. I admire, but I certainly could not imitate her. You say I am to tell you plenty. What would you have me say? Nothing happens at Howard's. Nothing, at least, of a pleasant kind. One little incident occurred about a week ago to sting us to life. But if it gives no more pleasure for you to hear than it did for us to witness, you will scarcely thank me for adverting to it. It was merely the arrival of a sheriff's officer on a visit to B, inviting him either to pay his debts or take a trip to York. Of course his debts had to be paid. It is not agreeable to lose money time after time in this way. But where is the use of dwelling on such subjects? It will make him no better. December 28th I feel as if it was almost a farce to sit down and write to you now, with nothing to say worth listening to. And indeed, if it were not for two reasons, I should put off the business at least a fourth night hence. The first reason is, I want another letter from you, for your letters are interesting, they have something in them, some results of experience and observation. One receives them with pleasure, and reads them with relish, and these letters I cannot expect to get, unless I reply to them. I wish the correspondence could be managed, so as to be all on one side. The second reason is derived from a remark in your last, that you felt lonely, something as I was at Brussels, and that consequently you had a peculiar desire to hear from old acquaintance. I can understand and sympathize with this. I remember the shortest note was a treat to me when I was at the above-named place. Therefore I write. I have also a third reason. It is a haunting terror, lest you should imagine I forget you, that my regard cools with absence. It is not in my nature to forget your nature, though I dare say I should spit fire and explode sometimes if we lived together continually, and you too would get angry, and then we should get reconciled and jog on as before. Do you ever get dissatisfied with your own temper when you are long fixed to one place, in one scene, subject to one monotonous species of annoyance? I do. I am now in that uninviable frame of mind. My humour, I think, is too soon over, thrown, too sore, too demonstrative and vehement. I almost long for some of the uniform serenity you describe in Mrs. Blank's disposition, or at least I would fain have her power of self-control and concealment, but I would not take her artificial habits and ideas along with her composure. After all, I should prefer being as I am. You do right not to be annoyed at any maxims of conventionality you meet with. Regard all new ways in the light of fresh experience for you. If you see any honey gather it. I don't, after all, consider that you ought to despise everything we see in the world, merely because it is not what we are accustomed to. I suspect, on the contrary, that there are not unfrequently substantial reasons underneath customs that appear to us absurd, and if I were ever again to find myself among strangers, I should be solicitous to examine before I condemned. 
in discriminating irony and fault-finding are just some freshness, and that is all. Anne is now much better, but papa has been for near a fortnight far from well with the influenza. He has at times a most distressing cough, and his spirits are much depressed. So ended the year 1846. End of section 1